0: Hi, everyone. Drew Perode here with the Broken Brain Podcast. Today, we have a fantastic episode for you on all things mold with one of the world's top experts on this topic, Dr. Ann Shippey, a functional medicine doctor based in Austin, Texas, a dear friend of mine, knows more about mold than anybody else I know. And today, she's here to talk to us on the podcast about why mold is such a problem. Did you know that almost one-third to one-half of all buildings in North America have a problem with mold? Dr. Ann Shippy talks about her journey on this podcast and how she had toxic mold exposure and all the symptoms that it led to inside of her body, including her hair falling out, and other joint pains that showed up for her. And if you've been following Dr. Hyman's journey at all, my business partner, Dr. Mark Hyman, of course, who we do this podcast with, Dr. Mark Hyman himself has had challenges with mold. In fact, last year, he gutted his house in Massachusetts and found that he had been exposed to toxic mold after realizing that a whole host of symptoms were plaguing his health. So in today's podcast, we're gonna go deep into this topic and talk about all the ways that mold impacts your body, including how it can cause brain fog, challenges with making decisions, hair loss as Dr. Ann Shippey experienced, gut imbalances, chronic fatigue, childhood and adult asthma, and even psychiatric issues and long-term brain disorder issues. In fact, in his book, The End of Alzheimer's, Dr. Dale Bredesen talked about how many of his patients dealing with Alzheimer's had issues with toxic mold. So in this podcast, we're going to talk about what the signs of mold are in our house and how it isn't always obvious that mold is present in the building, in our home, in our office space. Then, of course, we're going to talk about what to do if you have toxic mold exposure and how to test yourself and your home for toxic mold exposure we also talk about experimental therapies like ozone and hyperbaric and how they can be useful in helping people detox mold mold is such a big topic and if you've been following dr hyman's journey you know how important it is to him and how important it is for people to look at this avenue in their area of life now before we hop into the interview i just want to say thank you again for listening to this podcast we just crossed two million downloads in almost 35 weeks of having this podcast out there thank you for the love and support for telling a friend that you enjoy this podcast your word of mouth is everything to us. If you wouldn't mind, we would love for you to leave a review, leave a review on Google Play or the Apple iTunes podcast app. We would super appreciate it. And for those of you that reached out on Instagram over DM, thank you for saying hi. If you want to say hi and tell me what you thought about this episode or any other episodes, my Instagram handle is D-H-R-U-P-U-R-O-H-I-T, Drew Perot. Now, on to my formal intro for Dr. Anne Shippy. Welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast. I'm your host, Drew Pruitt, and today's guest is a dear friend of mine, Dr. Anne Shippey. Dr. Shippey is a physician, scientist, engineer, and mom whose purpose is to make every life well by providing the world with the knowledge and tools needed to achieve optimal health. Dr. Shippy is a dynamic leader in the area of functional medicine. Prior to her journey as a doctor, she was working as an engineer at IBM for over a decade when she became so frustrated with her healthcare challenges that she decided to leave the field of engineering and attend the University of Texas Medical School. Dr. Shippey has been serving patients for over 15 years in her thriving practice based in Austin, Texas. Her areas of expertise are autoimmunity, neurology, gastrointestinal disorders, infertility, pregnancy, and environmental factors such as mold toxicity, which we're going to dive deep into today's podcast. Dr. Shippey has been featured in numerous print and online publications like Good Housekeeping magazine, Mind Body Green, and many others. Dr. Shippy is also the author of two books, Shippy Paleo Essentials and the Mold Toxicity Workbook, which are both available on Amazon. Dr. Ann Shippy, welcome to the Broken Brain Podcast.
1: Oh, Drew, thank you so much for having me. So you
0: treat so many things, and I'm fortunate to know many of your uh, patients just through the community. you've helped many of my friends and they have had a whole host of 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 challenges and you've helped them with and but you've not but in addition to that, when even before we had met in person, when I was researching the topic of mold and asking around and asking different doctors you know who's a good resource for mold, and I want to learn more about it your name was always coming up. So you do so many different things. You work on so many different areas. But how did you become the mold whisperer in addition to everything else that you do?
1: Well, fortunately or unfortunately, I had to figure it out to help myself heal once again. So I had gotten sick um, as an engineer and had to figure out how to put the pieces of the puzzle together to get well enough to go to medical school. But a few years into practice, I started getting sick again. And uh, in, in my, into my functional medicine practice, and came to find out that I was actually getting exposed in my home and in my office. About a year before I had, was getting sick, I had gone to one of the few conferences on toxic mold that had ever happened prior to that, and had learned a little bit about it and realized I had been missing it in some of my patients. And uh, fortunately, a patient who had gone through it. Um, who's very intuitive, uh, pointed it out to me one day in my office. And there was so little information available about um, the ins and outs of, of helping people to get totally well from mold that I learned myself. I had been um, getting pretty sick. My hair was falling out. My, I had so much pain in my body that I didn't even want my my boys to hug me. And my right arm had gotten so weak that I would sometimes drop a glass if it was full.
0: That's incredible. And when you were making the decision to leave uh, being an engineer and the successful career that you built up, um, at what point in time did you realize that mold was playing a role in some of the health issues that you were facing?
1: Well, it's interesting because I really didn't realize that mold had probably impacted me way back then um, it, but it probably was because we had had a leak in our in our house that um now based on what I know now, they just it was a new house and they um had fixed it. Um, just by paint, you know, paint, fixing the roof and then painting it without ripping out any of the walls and that kind of thing. So here I am. Um, you know, let's see, that was, it would have been eight, you know, 12 years later, because I, I was uh, several years into practice. And um, and and finally, learning about mold, which was which was part, and I just had gotten lucky before. Part of what we had done around the time that I decided to go to medical school, as we had sold our house and and moved, so that probably really uh, really helped me.
0: So before we continue down your journey, because I'm super fascinated about it, and I know our listeners are too. Let's take a thirty thousand foot view of mold. I think there's a lot of misconceptions and misunderstandings about mold. You know, there's the light level of understanding of when people think of their food becoming moldy. And obviously, if your food's moldy, you're going to throw it out. But there's this deeper challenge with mold and the way that people are exposed with it. So let's first talk about when we talk about mold, what are we talking about? And then secondarily, you know, why is it an important topic for people to learn about when it comes to their health?
1: That's such a great question. So, even in the medical field, most physicians think about mold as being an allergy or asthma issue. So, that's more an issue with the mold spores. the The, the big impact that I see now is more on the toxins, the the um, the metabolic byproducts that the mold makes. It's just part of their normal survival is uh, those are thousands of chemicals that when they get into the human body are very, very toxic.
0: And it's almost like, like people think of, oh, I went in for an allergy scratch test and I didn't come back as being sensitive to mold. That may have nothing to do with being sensitive to the effects of the poisons that these molds produce.
1: That's exactly right. So what I see with my patients is that after being exposed to the mold toxins for a period of time, those accumulate in their body and they start to cause a lot of different problems. So the mold toxins, or you know what's called mycotoxins or MVOCs, can actually damage DNA, They can damage cell membranes, they can um, make the immune system so that it doesn't work very well. They can uh, cause cancer and a whole host of, of symptoms.
0: Yeah, we almost have to think of mold as like biologically and in the history of evolution fighting for real estate against other living things and bacteria in the natural environment, in the woods, in the rainforest out there. And so because mold can't necessarily run away, its defense mechanism is producing these mycotoxins to try to get rid of other things that are competing for real estate now. Oh, sorry, go ahead. Oh,
1: and I love it that people actually study this kind of thing. So they look to see what different families of molds do when they're even placed together. Like they make different chemicals depending on what other types of molds are there. And they make different chemicals depending on whether there's smoke or other environmental toxins in the air or um, depending on what the humidity in the air is. It's really fascinating for the microbiologist (laughs) to look at all these kinds of things.
0: Super fascinating. And it's also a reminder that these are incredibly sophisticated living things. Now, what what is going on uniquely in this day and age that we live in that um, we're sort of dealing with this uh, crisis of so many people being exposed to uh, mold um, and maybe in a way that we we weren't uh, in the past, or or do you even see it that way? Do you think like mold has always been an issue in in humanity?
1: Well, it's always been an uh, his, issue in humanity. If you go back and read, uh, there are places in the Bible that actually talk about burning down houses when there's mold. Um, and then um, there's been lots of research w- in animals. It's a huge, huge issue in um, with agriculture and. Um, and, and raising our animals, where when animals get fed moldy uh, grains and things, they become very sick. They don't reproduce. They have um, you know major infections that occur when they get exposed to mold. So um, translate that over into our food supply, the types of foods that uh, people are ten- tending to eat, a lot more of now with the grains, um, the way they're stored and produced, um, even uh, recently, this, this season, corn is, um, you know, they're having a lot of problem growing corn that meets the minimum standards for animals to be fed that. And then you extrapolate that into humans. We know that we're getting um, exposures in our food supply with, with things like grains and peanuts and coffee and chocolate. And it's not well regulated. Um, But then the bigger issue that I see, because a lot of the mold toxins actually uh, diffuse right into the body through the lungs, is that the way that we've changed the way that we build buildings. So in the 70s with the energy crisis, the whole um, science of buildings changed. The buildings were were built tightly. And when the buildings don't breathe, there's... um, the humidity isn't controlled as well, so when the, there is high humidity and almost every building has had uh, some uh, water damage at some, some point, um, the, the toxins actually build up in the building much more than they did in the past where the buildings breathe. They would dry out if there was a leak and, um, and could actually uh, have some of the toxins diffuse out of the house as well.
0: So besides being mold being just disgusting and people looking at it and maybe feeling a little queasy... Oh, wait, thinking, wait,
1: wait. I want to <laughs> say we, it's we think about mold as being a bad thing, but... One of the problems is that that's actually going on right now is that we need—we actually need good molds, um, good fungi—to help have healthy soil. So um, it's it's such an important part of our ecosystem. I, I don't want to badmouth it because we actually need it. We just need it to not be in our food in our houses.
0: <laughs> exactly. Exactly. Thank you for that clarification. So you know, when most people think of mold. They think of it like oh it's it's disgusting i have mold piling up in my refrigerator in my kitchen and sometimes people can think okay so you eat a little you're so you have some of your grains and you eat some mold so maybe get sick for a little bit and then you go from there but it's mold can have so many many so much mold can have such a deeper repercussions inside of our body and affect things in in all sorts of ways give us an example of some of the ways that long-term exposure to mold and really the mycotoxins that can get produced in our body, what kind of havoc can they wreak on our system?
1: Well, it's really fascinating because different people react differently. So even in the same family, one person might be much more affected than another um, exposed to the same toxins. So One of the common things that I see that's um, kind of a heads up is um, that people feel like their brain is foggier. Um, So it's just harder to focus, concentrate. Uh, They might be more forgetful. Um, uh, Making decisions can be more difficult. And uh, the next person just might feel more tired. Their hair is falling out. Their gut uh, feel out of balance, so nausea, Bloating, gas, those kinds of symptoms, and then a lot of people get psychiatric symptoms. They feel more depressed or more anxious. One of my patients, um, we can. She's had a over the years that I've been treating her. She's, she'll get get good. And then she'll come in and she'll be like, I, I'm not sleeping again. I'm more anxious. And each time we've been able, each of the five times over the last eight years, there's been something that's gone on with her house. Initially, the first leak wasn't fixed well. So six months later it came back. And then there've just been hidden problems in her house that came up. Um, there's also an association with Alzheimer's and dementia and then also, yeah, in submit- fact,
0: we've had uh, Doctor Dale Bredesen in our last docu series for Broken Brain, and he talked about his estimation is that upwards of maybe like one third of the patients that he was working on that had Alzheimer's had some sort of uh, mycotoxin damage that possibly contributed to um, their uh, increased symptoms and their risk of, of Alzheimer's.
1: I'm seeing that too. Um, most of the patients that have come into my office with Alzheimer's symptoms, there's been evidence of a mold exposure. The exciting thing is about it is that when we address the issues with the where they're getting the mold exposure and then help them get what's built up in their body out, the brain can heal.
0: Uh, it's so true. And I know we're going to talk all about that. So mm-hmm. you mentioned something really interesting. You said different people can respond to mold differently. What are the different circumstances that might be happening in someone's body to determine how uh, well or how resilient they are or aren't to mold and mycotoxin
1: exposure? That's a great question, and we're still figuring out a lot about that. And one of the most important things that I've seen is what their genetics are. So there are a lot of us, like me, that there are certain aspects of how we remove things from our body, the detoxification pathway, that uh, don't work optimally. So all environmental toxins are more likely to build up for us. And um, so, uh, you know, the more exposure, the more level in our body, the more... Serious the symptoms can be. Uh, the other things are: do we are we getting the right nutrients to help us to detoxify? So if we're not getting the things that that um, optimize detoxification, another genetic issue is methylation. And I think you had Ben Lynch on to talk about genes, and uh, he's an such an expert in methylation. So that's a really important thing to know what your genes are, and then to know that you are optimally working around those genes to try to avoid things like this. And then just the, the accumulation of different toxins. So um, I, I'll use myself an example. So as a kid, I had a mouthful of amalgam fillings. I don't anymore, but the, the, the mercury can build up. And then as a chemical engineer, I um, had a, probably a lot of exposures in just in the lab, experiments that we had to do during college and then working as a chemical engineer even though ibm has very strict safety standards you're still going to get some exposures in the manufacturing environment and then I loved tuna fish. <laughs> so I had years of also eating tuna fish and then not really knowing all the other things that I was doing with what I was putting on my skin and using fragrances and all those kinds of things. So I had kind of fill in, filled up my barrel with other things so that then when I did get exposed to such a significant um, toxic mold. So I got exposed to one of them that I describe as kryptonite for Superman. I, d- you know, I didn't have a chance.
0: <laughs> yeah. It's like all the toxins, the cumulative toxins in our life all add together. And, and sometimes these companies and even the EPA, they do studies on these individual toxins and they say, well, this level of lead or this level of chlorine or this level of this is safe but we haven't done any studies on the combinations of all these factors, and then we underestimate how often we're exposed to these things. So you're saying in your instance, being exposed to all these different components, mercury amalgam fillings, which we had um, my uh, dentist on the podcast talking all about that, and Dr. Roshchin and other aspects that you might be exposed to in a work environment, and then you add in a little bit of mold, you know, now you've hit what they call in functional medicine, your total load, and then boom, it all spills over and you have an expression. So what did you notice for yourself in that process? Like I, You mentioned that you might've had some mold exposure when you were younger, but what happened with your health later on and what symptoms were showing up in, in your own body?
1: So one of the big clues looking back now, when I hear people say this is I, by the time I got to Monday morning, even if I rested all weekend, I had to drag myself out of bed. Like, I just, I was so exhausted and nothing. Like, here I am. I've been doing functional medicine. I'm helping other people with these issues. And I could not figure out how to get my energy back. And I couldn't find anything on the normal labs that I would draw, which is usually, you know, pretty extensive. And I, um, My skin was so sensitive. I was, um, you know, just a very light hug or touch would be so painful. I couldn't really wear heels anymore because my, um, uh, my, my, just my legs and my feet would hurt so much if I tried to walk in even, you know, short heels. My hair was falling out so that my bathroom counter would just be covered with hair. It was kind of shocking I had any left. And, um, you know, looking back, I probably had a little brain fog. I didn't want to admit it at the time, but just a little spacier on how things would work. And then what was, I actually had gone to a lot of different specialists, you know, a hand doctor, a neurologist, an immunologist, um, because I was really rapidly losing the strength in my right arm. Another thing, I would ha- my muscles would just cramp severely, and I'd have little fasciculations in my muscles, which is little jumping. So it was really affecting me systemically.
0: So I know mold symptoms. Mold can wreak havoc in so many different ways in the body, as you explained earlier. But help us understand with this pain that was happening in your arm and losing like feeling, and what was going on with your hand. What is the relationship between mold and the mycotoxins and what you were
1: experiencing? In your, in your hand and in your arm? Oh, that's such a good question because I had really two main symptoms. It was, you know, the severe pain and then it was also the weakness. So the weakness was a direct neurological injury. That The particular um, mold that I was exposed to called chitomium makes a toxin called cheetoglobosin that's very neurotoxic. So it just starts to damage the nerves. And... Um, That from for my body, that right arm was just the most susceptible. That was just the the tipping point, right? Um, And then the pain is just the nerves being raw. They're, you know, it's almost like, um, you know, how your skin gets when you um, have had a burn or something like that, where there's just a lot of pain uh, from that from the nerve systems uh, nervous system wondering what's going on, and then probably trying to do some repair.
0: Let's take a step back a little bit because when it comes to mold, I often hear people say as they start to learn more about it, said, well, I don't see any mold in my house and it doesn't smell. So help start off with that in this process of understanding the mold that people are exposed to. You talked a little about grains and our food system and how our food system and peanuts, which are often uh, very moldy, But let's talk about building exposure and home exposure. A lot of people think, well, I don't see mold and I don't smell any mold, so I'm okay.
1: Help us understand how that... I love it that you asked that question. At least 95% of the patients that I've helped over the years with this issue would say, I don't have a mold problem in my house. I've never had a water leak. The thing that happens is the water intrusions hidden. So for example, a window window leaks. A lot of times there's not enough saturation at any given time for the, the water to thro- show through the paint. Um, but there's enough that behind the paint and the on the other side of the board, there's a significant mold colony growing. A lot of times it's behind uh, some type of plumbing, so behind the shower or bathtub. Behind a uh, a really common one is an ice maker or a dishwasher that's built into a cabinet or even a refrigerator line where you could have a whole wall of mold behind the cabinet and don't have any idea. And you don't smell it because that those particular molds aren't making the MVOCs that give that musty smell. Um, a lot of times the leaks are with a with a chimney or some type of a vent to the outside that hasn't been caulked perfectly or if you're not doing annual maintenance on those kinds of things that caulking has broken down so that when you have a heavy rain you have water coming in and then one of the biggest things especially in these uh Uh, warmer climates is that there's condensation that occurs in the heating and air conditioning system. So it can be all through your uh, air conditioning ducts and you have no idea, you don't see it. But the the way that the um, mold toxins just get into the air and then they're just part of what you're breathing in um, you don't, you don't see it, you don't know it and you don't smell it.
0: And, uh, a lot of people, um, you know, as, as a functional medicine practitioner, and of course, you know, we, we have our center, the ultra wellness center. And I, I listen to the doctors and I just watch the doctors take a patient through their intake. They're often asking them, when did these helps help if they suspect mold? And then of course there can be many different things that somebody's dealing with only mold is only could be one of them. Uh, if they suspect mold, sometimes they ask people, well, when did you when did you last move or how long has it been going on? And sometimes they find that when a patient moved into a new home, they some of their symptoms started. In fact, Good Housekeeping Magazine quoted you in an article that they wrote about a woman, and the title was My Dream Home Turned Into a Toxic Mold Nightmare, about a woman who found a fixer upper and purchased it, and all her symptoms started almost immediately when she moved into that new place. So another great example that uh, it's not like she would have bought the house if she saw a bunch of mold everywhere, but it was hidden and it slowly wreaked havoc on her system.
1: And what's even worse is a lot of people now are actually having mold inspections done, but the mold inspections are missing it. So even if it's on people's people's radar and they're doing that test, if you don't do a test on the dust, and send it to a really good lab uh, to get the DNA of the different molds and the, and test for mycotoxins, you might think that everything looks fine when, when it wasn't because what most inspectors are doing is doing an air sample and the to- most toxic molds like uh, stachybratris and chetomium don't send out very many spores very far. They're very heavy and they just kind of drop where they are. So it can look like everything's clean, and and then you get there and you think, and and then start unraveling.
0: So let's talk about testing and finding out how we would look for mold in the house. If a lot of it isn't necessarily visible and could be hidden, and other things. And I, th- I, so I think the first thing is that anybody who's in, involved in real estate or purchased a home or knows a little about it, a lot of inspectors are also just so used to a certain level of mold that they might even just check it off because they get hired you know by real estate agents and if they're raising a lot of flags then it's like i'm not gonna continue to work with this person who's doing the inspecting so what is the gold standard way to actually test for mold if we're concerned about it in our home or in our office,
1: you raise such a good point with your example. Um, the, I think the first thing is to get an inspector that really understands the health implications of mold. If if they if they don't, ha- you know, have a good understanding of that, they might not. Dig as deeply as you need them to to avoid the problems. Uh, So when you when you're choosing your inspector, you know have some questions around that. Like, well, what kind of problems does mold cause, and see what they answer back. uh, Now that this audience is educated, and then the second thing is finding out what they actually do to detect it. So. can't underestimate the importance of that visual inspection, like really looking for the the clues that there might be something going on, you know, actually pulling out the, the dishwasher and the refrigerator and looking at the floorboards to make sure that there's not some separation and, um, uh, you know, sometimes even taking samples of the ductwork and sending them out as well. But um, if there's anything suspicious uh, you know, kind of stop there and don't even depend on the testing. But if all of that looks good and um, and you're going to proceed, then it's so important to do uh, a test on the dust. And historically, that's been called an ERMI test, E-R-M-I. I don't uh, subscribe to that exact test anymore. I'm doing something called an HC45, which uh, is more molds than what's on a, the the traditional ERMI test. And it doesn't do any calculations like the ERMI test does. If, if somebody does that, I just cross that off. And we, we go back and we look at which molds are there and uh, what, what quantities. So with some molds, you're they're just, you're always going to see them because they're just part of the environment, like alternaria in a lot of places in the United States, that's always there. So that's not alarming. But if you see even a few uh, stachybotrys or chutomium, that should wait, raise a red flag, especially if you're buying the home or somebody's sick, you know, you already own the home or um, the building and somebody is not doing well in it. That should be a clue. Okay, we've got to dig dig deeper because we really don't have the standards determined yet on what really what safe amounts of these molds are. That this technology for doing this level of testing is new enough that we don't have standards when we take into account, you know different genetic susceptibility and um different people's environmental loads like we were talking about earlier we don't really know what safe levels are
0: super interesting because i moved into a house about uh three and a half years ago it's uh i live in santa monica which is by the ocean so i want to talk to you a little bit more about that about places that are also slightly more uh susceptible to developing mold so um I live in Santa Monica. There's not a lot of new properties, there's not a lot of new construction. So I found a house that I moved into about three years ago, it was built in 1948, 49. And you know, as I'm becoming more aware of all these things and I have air filters and other components, I went and called somebody who specialized in an ERMI test. And they came to the house and they did it. And they gave me a graph and showed me sort of the range of it. It came back, I think, as like 1.4. And I think the scale is like out of four, I believe. Mm -hmm. Right. I think it's like zero to four and it came back as 1.4. But interestingly, what I'm understanding from you now that is so great, because even I'm learning something here on this podcast, is it's less about what their calculations are and that sort of thing in total mold, but it's more about the strains that could be affecting you, which is why you may not rely on a test like an ERMI test anymore. Is that correct?
1: Exactly. I, I still think that the data in the ERMI test can be helpful, but you really need somebody to look at it with you and and look at the overall picture. You know, what is the total mold count? Is there a lot of aspergillus and some of those things? But then look at some of those more... Um, uh, toxic species and and really evaluate that before you make those purchases. Yeah, we can we can take a look at yours after the podcast, yeah. Drew.
0: <laughs> I'm gonna have to hire you for a consult.
1: <laughs> <laughs> I'm happy to help you, of course.
0: <laughs> so super fascinating. So that's one way that we test for mold exposure in the house. Now there's this whole other component, which is how a functional medicine doctor like yourself would actually test for exposure inside of the body through mycotoxins because a lot of people might have been a child or a kid and growing up in a home that maybe they've been dealing with health issues since they were younger, but nobody was aware of mold or they didn't know that their house was uh, infested with mold. So even if they've moved out and they've moved to a new place and their ERMI test comes back as okay, or this additional test that you had mentioned says okay, they might actually have still these mycotoxins in the body. So tell us, how do you look for that in, inside someone?
1: Yeah. And that's such a great point too. So sometimes people don't get better by just leaving the, the moldy environment because there's, their toxins are still built up in their body. And part of why they got sick in the first place is they don't detoxify great. And then the mold makes them detoxify even more poorly. So I like to do, um, a mycotoxin test and the best thing that we have right now this is still evolving technology I think it's been out there for about 10 years um, but we you know we can only test for a very small um, portion of the toxins that are made so it's a urine test just to see what's coming out of the person's body and then what I found is, uh, years ago is that if I didn't do something to actually help get the detoxification system uh, working better with that test, I would miss it. Like my, my, some of my sickest patients said, I, I, there were even, you know, suspicions that they were in mold because they'd had a leak, um, which they were coming back negative on that test. So I developed a protocol where I have them collect a urine where they don't take anything, we just see what their baseline is, and then they do a second sample where after they've taken a, a fairly significant dose of liposomal glutathione and we collect their urine for six to eight hours or overnight and we see how much has come out with some assistance to their detoxification system
0: oh interesting so uh you know I know one of the clinics that a lot of uh practitioners use is a company called real time labs so mm-hmm would you use you'd sort of do a before and after test with glutathione to see if their baseline changes
1: exactly so um yeah so i do like to use real-time lab i have the most experience with them and i can do the glutathione with that company there's another company called great plains uh, that does mycotoxin testing as well. Um, I, I can't use that protocol with them because they use a whole different technology for detecting the toxins. So if I give them glutathione, it um, also converts it into a different form so that the, that test misses it. But uh, sometimes, uh, depending on what people's budget is, uh, that, that company's a little less expensive to, to run the test. We'll start there and see what we find. Uh, Then also having people um, get in hyperbaric for a few days or uh, do some infrared saunas, that can also get the detoxification system moving. And I'll take some of those patients that everything looks fine to um, detecting it. if And I use that when people aren't able to take glutathione.
0: And I think you bring up such an important topic, which is that the technology is still evolving and we're playing catch up. And part of the reason why is that modern uh, medicine has not really put a lot of attention into mold and thinking of it as an issue because it's still coming on the radar. And many uh, physicians and other types of practitioners, they don't learn about it much in school, right? Maybe if anything, it's talked about conceptually in the bigger picture. And that would be in like under undergraduate, or maybe it's brought up in the context of an allergy test, which we already know is not relevant to the type of uh, s- symptoms necessarily that we've been talking about here.
1: Exactly. In pretty much all medical training, we get taught about mold as an infection because people can get it in their lungs or their guts or bladders or skin, uh, sinuses. So we think about it as an infection and and usually just in immunocompromised, although I'm finding that that's not necessarily the case as well. That's just when people get the sickest. And then we're taught about it as an allergen and a cause of asthma. So what's really fascinating to me, too, is that even though we're taught that in med- medical school, even most allergists um, don't consider an e- mold exposure when people have an onset of asthma, it's definitely the most common cause of adult onset asthma. And I think it's also a very common cause of childhood asthma as well. And,
0: you know, you mentioned something earlier and I've, I've read a, in the literature and I've talked to a few different practitioners that, and I'd love to get your thought on it because you've dealt with so many people, that sometimes if somebody's had long-term exposure in their home growing up or maybe their dorm room um, or, or office environment that they can sometimes get a mold colony in their nasal cavity that even if they're removed from that building, they are having like a little, I don't know if this is the proper terminology and you might say, uh, you're crazy and (laughs) no, this is an issue. But what I've read a little bit is that (laughs) there can be a mold colony that sort of, uh, forms in the nasal cavity and where this moisture and everything is in our airways breathing in. And that could constantly producing a small amount of, of mycotoxins that can continuously infect someone, and that's why some practitioners who treat mold might use like a nasal antibiotic if they suspect that. Is there any truth or validity to that?
1: It's extremely true and extremely common. I find that that's, a, I think that's a lot of why some people get tipped over more quickly than others in the building is that they just had the bad luck of getting what I would call either a colonization or an infection of, of um, mold or fungi in their, um, either in their sinuses or nasal passages, their lungs or their gut, even their bladder. And what's exciting is that we're finally developing some technology that's actually kind of similar to how we do the dust testing, Um, on the human body, we can send almost any secretion or swab to some labs and they're actually able to pick these um, colonizations up. Whereas in the past, it's been very difficult to identify them because the mold is, is kind of hard to grow in a laboratory environment where they're actually trying to culture it it just doesn't grow there very well so that the culture might come back negative. If you just send it, send a swab off to the regular, you know, local laboratory and, um, and, and then miss that really important piece of helping somebody to recover.
0: Let's go back to your story and your journey. When you became a functional medicine practitioner and your own health issues, and you were starting to look at how to heal yourself, um, what did you do and what was the journey like?
1: Well, at the time, fortunately, um, Bill Ray, uh, who's one of the founders in environmental medicine and actually put on that um, first conference that I had g- gone to, had a little bit of information from him. And then Richie Shoemaker had been coming out with some books and uh, materials on on how to heal from from mold. So between those two, I was able to get started and and um, start to heal well enough so that I could keep working and keep taking care of my kids. Fortunately, so you know, one of the most important things for me was getting out of the environments that I was in. So I had had hidden leaks in my home, and then obvious leaks in my in the hallways. Uh, in my office so i was able to move from both of those places and um so that started making a difference fairly quickly fortunately for me and then and did you
0: notice a difference like when you moved out you significantly felt like you know even if th- that you when you slept you weren't as tired like what did you notice when you moved out of those of those environments
1: yeah i'm really really lucky i started getting my energy back and i started getting the strength back in my arm and less pain and my hair quit falling out, you know, fairly quickly within weeks. Uh, that doesn't wow. happen to everybody. Um, and then I I started uh, Doctor Shoemaker, who I I respect very much, but I feel like, um, you know his his protocol didn't work for me. I um, and that's part of why I had to become such an expert myself, is I, I did not tolerate uh, cholesteramine. And so, and then just explain what that is. for So cholestyramine, yeah, uh, cholestyramine is a medication that's a binding agent. It's an old old medicine for cholesterol, and um, it so it helps to pull the toxins out through your gut. And it made me, when I tried taking that, I just got so sick. So I'm like, oh, my gosh, what am I going to do? So I had to go back to my functional medicine toolbox and really start to think through, okay, what's going to help get these toxins out of my body? And so one of the big things was uh, the liposomal glutathione that I now I used to help with the testing and have most patients take that um, uh, as most people are actually depleted in it. And um, and then it found other binders like the cholestyramine, but that I could actually take and tolerate. So things like um, a medical grade clay and charcoal and something called modified citrus pectin. So for me, those really helped. And then I got, I started doing um, infrared saunas on a regular basis. And that, I, you know, was very, very blessed to have figured out what I, what I needed to do. And of course, having a very careful diet, I, a super low inflammatory diet. So lots of, of the vegetables that support detoxification, like broccoli, cauliflower, cabbage, kale, onions, garlic, and then some bear, you know, a few berries, the, uh, to get those nice antioxidants in. And then a host of other supplements um, that that really support me. Um, and then I found things like, oh my gosh, I'm detoxing so much at night that I need to, um, I actually need to replace my sheets every few months and wash them almost every day because otherwise I would feel like I was laying back down into the, into the toxins. I I would have restless sleep and not feel as good in the next morning if I didn't do some of those things. So it's, um, it's been quite a journey.
0: (laughs) It's been quite a journey and you've written a lot about it in your book, which, uh, you know, we'll definitely link to, and people can dig into it. Um, going back to, you know, I'm just listening to your story and, and, and some people might be relating to it or they might have seen that they've had exposure. Of course, at the end of the day, people should always work with uh, a physician or a healthcare practitioner who can personalize a program um, for them. But what are the things that you've told your patients or written about or told people that they can do that if they suspect that they have um, – mold or mold exposure that might be contributing to some of their health issues? How can we minimize the damage? And what are the things that are pretty generally safe for most people to do?
1: The uh, the biggest thing is to get into as clean of an environment as possible as clean as soon as possible. I know that's really, really challenging for some people, um, you know, financially, it really takes a toll. But that's the number one thing. It's very difficult to heal completely, especially if people have the neurological issues um, to, to uh, basically I describe it as getting the spigots open enough and get the immune system settled down enough that they can totally heal, but um, the, the other things are, or that liposomal glutathione—it's—it's—it's it's, it's really critical for most of my patients to get well. Um, so the the liposomal glutathione is a special form of glutathione that. It gets absorbed uh, through the digestive tract rather than just getting digested. So then it can go right into the cells and into the mitochondria as as needed to actually help the the cellular m- machinery in all of the cells and then also in the liver to be able to get the the toxins in general, but especially the mycotoxins ready to be eliminated from the body.
0: And many of our listeners will have remembered from past episodes, glutathione being brought up a lot as the number one, one of the top antioxidants that are out there. So, so just, to, just to kind of summarize the things you shared. So first things first, people need to see if their environment is the main culprit. So the ERMI test could be one. And then could you remind us of the name again of the other tests that you had mentioned?
1: HC45. I uh, send it to if a company called for,
0: Amtech. Um, And, and if we want, if people are out there and they're listening, they're like, well, I live in Houston, Texas, or I live in like, you know, Delaware or New York city. What, what are resources on how they can find somebody that can help them come in and, and test that and, and, and actually conduct that in their environment, in their home or in their office?
1: That's a really good question We've got a um a checklist of th- of thing of questions to ask the inspectors uh in your area and then there are some inspectors that will uh travel from out of state to to help but what I think a lot of people can do is actually order one of these test kits. And, uh, and get as much as dust as they can in their houses. So go along, along floorboards and air vents and uh, top of the refrigerator, just places that you don't dust all the time. Get as much dust as you can and then send that in. And then if it's positive, then you can um, go looking for an inspector that can help to um, interpret that result and, um, and make sense of it. And how possibly actually help find the find the source
0: <laughs> find the source and see can something be done, or is it something much deeper and I, I bring this up because you know Dr. Hyman himself, after living in his house for many years now in in the Berkshires in Massachusetts, finally started suspecting that there was some mold issues it 's a barn, and he's talked about this in Past podcast with um, Mind Body Green. He did an episode with Jason, the founder of Mind Body Green, where he talked about this. We'll make sure we link to this in the show notes about how he had a renovated barn that he turned into this beautiful sort of country house in the Berkshires. Started suspecting mold was an issue, went in, opened up the panels in the home, and basically found mold everywhere. <sighs>
1: um, yeah, I, I, that's. Um... You know, it's so interesting, too, because as functional medicine physicians, a lot of us already are more susceptible to environmental toxicity, but I feel like it's been my best way and i know mark feels this way too is um it's kind of the best way we learn we really learn what works what doesn't work and kind of open our thinking and uh so i'll just say unfortunately or fortunately i've had several other episodes since that original one almost nine years ago um you know uh two years ago developed uh, adult onset asthma for the first time in my life and then also in the meantime uh Let's see. I guess that was about um, seven years ago. Had a problem with my office where it turned out that there was mold all through the air conditioning system, and we had to rip out uh, all the ductwork and replace the two air conditioning systems. So, I think I think uh, Mark's not alone. That we're kind of learning learning about it as we go. And the big thing that ne- I think really needs to happen is that we get. Better building standards for these, um, for how we build houses and how we maintain them, so that we can prevent the, the mold growth in the first place. And I'd really love to have a Super Bowl commercial where I talk about how important it is when we have a leak to get everything dried out within 24 hours people think oh i'm just going to let this dry but no there's already mold spores in drywall usually so then if it gets wet and it doesn't get dried within that 24 to 48 hours you could have a whole wall of mold before you even know it and it can be behind the paint so you don't even see it
0: it's crazy i mean it's a big it's a big issue and i think that i've read um through the world health organization and a few other independent um places that made references that it's suspected that almost up to one third of all buildings in at least north america are dealing with some sort of uh toxic mold presence um in them do you have any uh Do you have any thoughts on how widespread this is? So
1: I've got some data that goes back to um, 2009. The Lawrence Berkeley National Lab Report estimated that 47% of homes around that time had dampness or mold. And that 85% of other types of buildings, so putting in commercial and real estate, all of that kind of thing, could have had a past water leak. So that, to me, means a high proportion of those have actually have mold, and that 45% of those buildings had a current leak. I haven't, you know, that's almost 10 years ago, so I don't have any updated statistics that I've been able to find. I would say that that's probably much worse with all of the hurricanes that we've been having over the last few years in different areas of the country. Um,
0: Especially flooding in Houston and New Orleans where houses are just underwater for maybe like four. I have a cousin of mine who lives in Houston and the river nearby their place overflowed during the hurricane. And his place was literally under three feet of water for probably a week before they could get in and start doing things. So in that instance, we're seeing even more and more places where mold can potentially become an issue.
1: Yes. And, and what I'm seeing with patients, cause I have patients come from all over the country to see me is that, um, even having these, you know, more of the storms where, um, People don't see that the, the, some of the people actually from Houston that have come, they thought they were saved from the storm. They, you know, they didn't have obvious flooding. They didn't have obvious uh, leaks. But there was enough that broke through the vapor barrier on the outside of the house and around windows that they ended up with huge mold problems. So that's, that's such just such an important um you know, thing for people to realize that if they're starting to get sick with some of these common symptoms, it's something that has to be investigated.
0: And not everybody who's exposed to mold gets really sick. Of course, we talked about that earlier, but we are in situations where we know there's exposure. I am recording this now in our new office that we moved into recently that's in a historic building in Santa Monica that was built in literally like 1915. It's an old, old building and I look up at some of the ducts and the AC units and other things, and I can see, not mold, but I can suspect there's probably something that's going on there. Now, there's nobody in our office that's displaying any symptoms yet, obviously, and so I do wanna bring somebody in now that I've gotten this new understanding of the testing that I can run. But let's say, for instance, you you mentioned something earlier which is just so unfortunate, is that um, there is often a significant, I mean, some people, can't move out of their house they can't do stuff because of whatever is going on or they work at a company where they can't necessarily convince the company to to move in that instance if you're living with it and uh, ultimately you have to decide what's right for your health but let's say for instance you do think there is mold exposure in a place that you're in and for whatever reason you can't move out what are things that we can do to mitigate our exposure or the effect that it can have on our body?
1: Well, hopefully there can at least be some level of remediation. So at least hopefully getting the mold uh, taken out to whatever extent that they can. And then, you know, supporting the detoxification systems with the things that we talked about and the things that I have in my book. And then um, uh, putting in a, a HEPA filter or a... a, a um, like a scrubber sometimes can at least take the edge off. And then interestingly, opening opening windows just to let fresh air in and reduce the concentration of the toxins if you're in an area where, where you can do that temperature wise.
0: And do you have any favorite air filters or things out there that you recommend to your uh, patients to use to, to do that as, as part of keeping? I mean, indoor air quality is already an issue separate from mold. We already know from studies from the EPA that indoor air quality can be up to you know, 100 times more toxic than outdoor air quality because of all the indoor pollutants and paints and other things. Uh, but do you have uh, just while we're on the topic do you have a go-to air Thank filter Thank you for
1: asking me that. Yes, I think I really think everybody should have a HEPA filter in their bedroom because we spend hopefully at least 8 hours sleeping in there every day. So at least for breathing fresh air during that period of time that's that's going to help us some. so I really like the IQ air filters. The um the the thing that maybe uh they are a little bit on the pricey side. So a less expensive option would be Austin Air. And then if people are wanting an air scrubber to, to just really try to get as much volume through the filter as possible, I use one called Dry Ease HEPA 500. They're big, blue, ugly things, so they're not they're not great for the decor, but they do move a lot of air. And I have people put a carbon filter next to the HEPA filter.
0: Amazing. I'll throw another one in there, and we've done some partnerships with them in the past. It's a pretty good quality HEPA filter. It's called Air Doctor and uh, we have some of those in our clinic. So all great
1: to look at that.
0: All great. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. Um, And we'll link to all those in the show notes over there. So that's super um, interesting. Now, at the beginning of our podcast, we talked about Alzheimer's, and I want you to expand a little bit on that. And, um, you know, of course, there's the work of Dr. Dale Bredesen, but there's uh, even some studies and research that's showing that there might be some links with mold and and, um, and fungal infection. Can you expand on that a little bit more and what you've seen in this in- environment? We talked a lot about Alzheimer's and broken brain, and obviously uh, our listeners are always interested in the things that they can do to re- reduce their risk for immediate things, but also things that we traditionally see as long-term health issues like uh, Alzheimer's. Anything else that you can add to that on these studies or what we know?
1: Well, I think that it's it's such an A fascinating area of uh, discovery right now. In fact, I, uh, in the preparation for this show, went in and um, looked to see what the latest thing is because it's evolving all the time. So there's a nice uh, review article that we can link to that just came out in October on um, just the infectious etiology of Alzheimer's disease in general. So really starting to understand the mechanisms of why some people get uh, the response that they do to these infections, because a lot of people are probably fighting off infections, you know, low-grade infections in their brain, but they're fine. And so some people are just more predisposed to actually having the, the, you know, chronic uh, accumulation of damage. And it can be caused by um, multiple infections now it's been linked to some of the viral things like herpes and then um, uh, things like chlamydia and probably some of the spirochetes and and also fungal infections so I uh, one of the things just applying this into practice is when I when I'm taking care of patients a lot of times the uh, neurological and brain issues will get better just as we're we're doing the things that we need to do with helping them to detoxify and give them the nutrients that really help to rebuild their brain, um, like phosphatidylcholine and nicotinamide deep riboside, really great forms of CoQ10, those kinds of things. But if I find signs of an, of a fungal infection in their body with the, with the Tests that I was talking about before, really anywhere in their body, and they're not responding the way that I expect them to with improvement in their memory and cognitive function. I will use antifungals. I like to do as things as naturally and holistically as possible, but sometimes it's very called for to use um, the. Prescription antifungal medications, and I'll think about well which ones are going to be best in this case for actually crossing the blood-brain barrier and potentially helping with this infection. Since we can't biopsy the brain, we're a lot of times we're just having to use the results that we have from the other uh, places in the body, and especially since the the nares and the sinuses are so close to the brain, I think that's a good indication of what could be going on in the brain.
0: Mm. And I know we, I I saw you recently at Summit Series. We were at the event (laughs) together and I was sharing with you. Yeah, we had such a blast. I know I was sharing with you that uh, um, Dr. Mark Hyman, after his mold exposure and he was dealing with a few different things, uh, had a patient of his that came to him and said that they had used direct IV ozone, which just, you know, everybody who's listening, uh, very experimental, not you know, approved to treat any other diseases or anything else like that. But sometimes practitioners go on journeys where they go and research things themselves to see if they can get an improvement and um, maybe try to put the spotlight on it. I know even Dr. Hyman now is interested in, in doing research on, on ozone, but he actually used as part of his healing protocol, uh, uh, direct IV, um, ozone. And I know that, um, uh, I, I asked you about it, just what your thoughts are. And you were saying that um, you don't use it right now in the, in the practice, but there could be some, it, it's it's worth, well, let me ask you this way. Would you suggest that people look into it further? Absolutely. Um, as part of I, I would their, try, part of their treatment?
1: yes, definitely. I would try to do the most, for me, I want to do the least harm and, but then also get people to the finish line as soon as possible. Right. So if you're, you know, if you're getting better by cleaning up the environment, doing the things to support your system to heal with the, you know, with the good nutrients for healing, and then also helping with detoxification, then I don't think that you want to take any additional risk with something like the ozone. But if you're not getting better, I I think that there's um, definitely it's something to consider. Oh, I also haven't mentioned hyperbarics. Oh, that was one of the things. So two years ago when I got the asthma from the mold that I was in, I I feel like hyperbaric really sped up my recovery because I think it was helping me to detoxify, increase stem cell production, and really help to get that lung tissue healed up.
0: And for people who are listening who are not familiar with hyperbaric, can you explain uh, what it is and and, and what it. What's happening to the body when we're in a hyperbaric chamber? Yes,
1: because I, lo- I love the research that's coming out on hyperbarics now. Uh, it's like a chamber. It's like going on a dive. Uh, so you're on 100% oxygen, and it, you go down to, to pressures like you were diving. And so what that does is it really saturates the tissues with oxygen. And by doing that, it also increases your own stem cell production to to heal, and it's primarily been used for people that are, you know, have a diving accident and, you know, go through the bends to help them to recover and for major infections like diabetic foot infections, but now we're finding that it's really great for brain traumas and all kinds of other things, and now there's some data that it really dramatically helps you to detoxify as well, so it's a really great up-and-coming Uh, option for lots of different, uh, for, you know, augmenting the uh, treatment protocol for lots of different things. And I've seen great results for some of my concussion uh, patients um, that, you know, just, you know, were really in a bind and we needed to get them well fast it's been dramatic combining that with some things like IV phosphatidylcholine and NAD with the hyperbaric. So I'm super excited about it.
0: Yeah. Even um, John Hopkins University, I believe, uh, you know, you can Google, Google this. There's a few different hospitals that are also using it for people that might have like open wounds and to encouraging, you know, through an accident or through something else are using it to, uh, increase the recovery process and the body 's repair process by putting patients in a hyperbaric chamber, so it seems like there 's a lot of interest in it and it can be used through it can be used for a lot of other things that are just now starting to show up so a super fascinating area in development
1: in medicine. <laughs> Yes, and I think it's pretty well-funded research-wise. Unfortunately, things like the ozone, they do, it just doesn't get the funding that it needs. I think it's going to have to take some mm-hmm. some private funding to get mm-hmm. it done.
0: Yeah, well, maybe we'll be working on that. Let's do it. <laughs> <laughs> uh, Dr. Ann Shibbe, you are so amazing, and you've really helped us do a deep dive on this topic. And you have so many of the subjects that you can go into and uh, we're going to have to have you back on the podcast to talk about those things. Um, you have actually put together a, a worksheet, uh, a fact sheet for people called, could it be mold? Uh, can you tell our audience a little bit about that and where they can find that?
1: Yes, it is. Uh, AnnshippyMD.com slash mold. So annshippym com slash mold. And it, it takes some of these things that we're talking about and just puts them in a quick reference sheet so that you can go right to that and get the information you need to get started. And, and some things that if you're already underway and, and, and getting stuck, that it might help you to get going uh, in, into the next area that you need to look at to get better, uh, especially for people that don't have access to a functional medicine doctor or another physician that's uh, knowledgeable on mold.
0: In addition to the fact sheet, you have your mold toxicity workbook, which we'll link to in the show notes and people can get that on, on Amazon. Are you seeing this now becoming, uh, you know, there's friends of ours and, and very influential people like Dave Asprey. We already talked about Mark Hyman. Dave Asprey had a major issue with mold. He produced a documentary called moldy, which I believe you can watch free online. I
1: highly recommend that documentary. It's really well done. Uh, are you seeing an increasing
0: awareness of mold? Are you seeing more physicians that are ready to take this on and be able to help patients who are dealing with this? It's so
1: exciting. I, I, one of the things that uh, another colleague and my and I are thinking about doing. Uh, Jill Carnahan, we're thinking about putting together a, a course for for healthcare providers to get up to speed on really how to. Help, the, help so many people that are being affected by this that aren't even getting diagnosed. So just really increasing the awareness and doing a deep dive on the laboratory testing and the different approaches that different people need to get well.
0: For our listeners who want to learn more about you and follow you on social media and check out all the great stuff that you're up to, where can they find you uh, on social media? And um, tell them a little bit more about your website and, and some of the um, places
1: they can find your writing. So, there's a, we're uh, putting blogs up on our website at the Anship EMD, and then posting on Instagram, Facebook, Twitter, and then I've just decided to to also do a weekly blog on Medium. Have you seen Medium? <laughs> I've,
0: I love yeah, Medium. Yeah,
1: so we're we're putting a lot of, a lot of really good things out on on Medium as well.
0: Oh, incredible! Well, we'll link to all that there. And I just want to thank you for the incredible work. You know, it's truly the 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 hero's journey. You know, you went through your own health issues. <laughs> you uh, got yourself better. And, of course, you've been very transparent that it was an ongoing journey with ups and downs. But now you're taking that information of everything you dealt with and you're out there helping the world on this topic that just needs so much more attention that a lot of people don't know about. So I want to applaud you for just this incredible career that you've built up even separate from mold of helping people and you've been so helpful to uh friends of mine that are patients of yours and they just sing all the praises of you and i just want to say uh thank you for being you
1: oh thank you and i i feel so lucky to get to do what i do it's um it's just such a perfect situation where i get to use my gifts and in such a positive way to make a difference every day what what more could you ask for
0: (laughs) incredible Well, Dr. Anshabit, thank you again for being on the Broken Rain Podcast. We look forward to having you back.
1: Thank you, Bob. Look forward to that too.
0: Hi, everyone. I hope you enjoyed the interview. Just a reminder, this podcast is for educational purposes only. This podcast is not, I repeat, it's not a substitute for professional care by a doctor or otherwise qualified medical professional. This podcast is provided on the understanding that it does not constitute medical or other professional advice or services. If you're looking for help in your journey, seek out a qualified medical practitioner. If you're looking for a functional medicine practitioner, you can visit ifm.org and search there, find a provider database. It's important that you have somebody in your corner that's qualified, that's trained, that's a licensed healthcare practitioner helping you make changes especially when it comes to your health.